0: Remember to pray for the kids as they leave for age-appropriate instruction. And let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the young ones. Thank you for those who are giving of their time and have already sacrificed preparation time so that they can teach these precious trusts your word. Thank you so much now that we can look at your word together as well we can see some uh, very significant things about the Lion and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, the victorious Savior, the coming Crusader. We thank you in his name. Amen. If you missed us last week, we are in kind of a short series dealing with what's going to happen at the climax of history. Climax of history leading into some of those great events in the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. This morning we're going to be looking at King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 19, in just a few moments we'll pick up the reading there in verse 11. But first of all, some of you were here last week. Do you remember the shouting and the celebration in the first half of this chapter? Do you remember the hallelujahs? (laughs) I was going to test you. I don't have to test you, do I? Well, I'm going to test you anyway. One, two, three. (laughs) Hallelujah. See, we're not inhibited. We're we're growing in that. Remember why the hallelujahs were being shouted, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God Omnipotent reigns. There was a lot worth shouting about. One of the happenings worth shouting about in the first ten verses was what we referred to as the marriage supper It says super on the screen. That's just to keep you on your toes. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Key event in the second half of the chapter is also a supper. That's what we're going to take a look at today. Some of you are beginning to say, I really like this message already. Two suppers. But only one of the suppers is for us. The other one, frankly, is disgusting. One is the marriage supper of the Lamb The other is the great supper of God. Is it possible that they're describing the same meal because it's the same chapter and it looks pretty close, but no, it's not the same meal at all, not even close. This, what we're about to read, is going to give us a second extreme of dining, completely different than the one we saw earlier in the chapter, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb refers back in verse 9 to the great celebration of the union between the Lord Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. That's the finest dining imaginable, and that involves us if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the great supper of God that we'll see in verse 17, we haven't gotten there yet, but we'll see that in our reading in just a moment, that describes the cleanup operation of the scavengers on earth, the birds of the air gorging themselves on the flesh of the vanquished armies of the beast and the kings of the earth who dared to make war against the king of kings and lord of lords. This is at the end of the great campaign often referred to as the battle of Armageddon And a disturbing picture is on the screen. Those of you that can't see it, probably some are saying are fortunate. But it's based on this verse in Revelation 19, 18. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's what we're about to embark on. That is the second supper. That is not a supper that we want to be involved in, nor will we be. This is a supper literally for the birds. Let's read about it now together, beginning with verse 11 in Revelation 19. Remember, this is the Apostle John who's writing, and he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And stop there for just a moment. That's the last we're going to hear of the horse, uh, because what's important is not the horse, what is important is who is riding. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Ezekiel tells us it took seven months to clean up that mess. The birds couldn't clean it all up. It took seven months. There could have been millions of people involved in that destruction. John MacArthur introduces this part of Revelation chapter 19 with these words that in one way are dated, but in one way will never be dated. We just need to fill in a few events that have taken place more recently. But here's what he said. A century ago, most people believed that history was progressing inexorably toward a man-made utopia. The Industrial Revolution, the march of scientific discovery, and the increasing pace of social reform seem to augur nothing but brighter days ahead. Today, however, two world wars, innumerable regional, civil, and national wars, countless acts of terrorism and senseless violence, and the nearly complete collapse of moral values make such rosy optimism seem quaintly naive. The Bible teaches that things will be wonderfully better but only after they become unimaginably worse. There is only one solution for the world's problems, the return of its true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, to establish absolute monarchy and unilateral authority in his earthly kingdom. And here he comes in our Scripture today, the rider on a white horse. John saw heaven opened, it begins, and what an awesome sight. That will be. Back in chapter four, verse one, a door was opened in heaven. That door was opened to let John in and perhaps even to let the church in if that's a picture of the rapture or the reality of the rapture. This time, all of heaven is opened and there's plenty of room for the rider on the white horse and his armies to come out of heaven. I'm going to ask you to use a lot of imagination today, not because this is imaginative, but because we haven't seen anything like it before. Picture the glory and the grandeur of these events. Heaven opened, and here comes the Lord Jesus riding a white horse, and here comes his armies. And we'll hear a little bit more about his armies a little bit later on. John saw that white horse, and he saw that with a rider aboard. Incidentally, this is not the same horse and rider that is mentioned in chapter 6, verse 2. There was a rider, you may recall, those of you that have been studying with us on Sunday nights, there was a rider there. He was riding a white horse. That was the first seal judgment. That white horse and rider were Satan's counterfeit. And you'll see in the book of Revelation, counterfeits all over the place. We have the Holy Trinity. They have the infernal Trinity. We've got the dragon or Satan and the Antichrist. And then there's a false prophet who is trying to do his best to exalt the Antichrist. But they're trying to mimic the Trinity um, and, and unsuccessfully, but they're always counterfeits. And this was one of them in the seal judgment. We obviously have the genuine conqueror before us here. There is a big difference. The rider on this white horse has got to be the Lord Jesus himself. Don't accept a substitute. This is the return of Jesus. This is the second coming of Christ. Let me ask you a question. This is a patriotic weekend. We're thinking about things like, what is this? Apple pie. How many of you think it's apple pie? It is not. How many of you didn't put your hand up when I said you think this is apple pie because you thought I was trying to trick you? How many of you? That's, you know me. This is not apple pie. This is zucchini mock apple pie. Isn't that awful? (laughs) I remember as a little kid, we went out to eat at somebody's house. My, my whole family went and at the end of the meal, they served mock apple pie I took they didn't tell us I took one bite and I looked over at my mom and I said what is this because the best part of any pie is the fruit in it why would anybody do mock apple pie and particularly why would anybody do zucchini mock apple pie Don't accept a substitute. Many will come at the end times claiming to be Christ. Many will be claiming to be the conqueror, the one who will lead us out of our dismal lives into something glorious. We need to immerse ourselves in the true person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the real thing. The rider of the white horse has four names in this context. They can only describe Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus has been directing affairs from heaven. Now he is coming to earth for the grand finale. That's why I think this is such an important thing for us to study. It's such an encouraging thing, such a comforting thing for us to be able to study. Four names. Name number one in verse 11, he's called Faithful and True. If we didn't know from the context that it was Jesus, we would know from this particular descriptive title, Faithful and True. And true. When we think about faithfulness and we think about the truth, the veracity of God himself and the Lord Jesus, I often will go to Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. Joshua is saying farewell to his people. And he says, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. That's the way that it was. That's the way that it has been. That's the way that it is. And that's the way that it will be. This is the faithful and the true. Back in Revelation chapter three, verse 14, Jesus was called the faithful and true witness to the church at Laodicea. From his faithfulness, we rejoice in our protection and in our security He is always going to be faithful. We don't have to wonder if any time soon He's going to stop being faithful to us or if we're going to be the exception. There won't be any exceptions. The word true here, when it says faithful and true, actually means genuine. It means not a counterfeit. And again, I emphasize, don't accept anything else at all. No substitutions at all. Some of you know the name... Dr. Adoniram Judson. He worked as hard as he could for six years in what was called Burma at the time before he baptized his first convert. Six years. At the end of three years, he was asked, what evidence did he have of ultimate success? That's three years of nothing. Three years later, he would have his first baptism. But he was asked after three years, what evidence did he have of ultimate success? His reply as much as there is a God who will fulfill all his promises. Do you know what he's saying there? (laughs) What evidence do I have of success? Every evidence imaginable, because it's the same evidence that there is a God who keeps his promises, a God who keeps his word, and a God who is faithful and true. A hundred churches and thousands of converts answered his faith, because that one baptism after six years led to more and more and more because God was faithful. Verse 12, a second name. He also had a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. So that's the second name of Jesus. The first one is faithful and true. Second one is a name written on him that no one knows. Would you like me to tell you what that name is? I would like for me to tell you what that name is too, but I can't or I would be lying. Doesn't it say there that No one knows but Jesus. So all we know, there's a second name, and maybe we'll get to know that someday, but we can't open all of our presents before Christmas, and that's one we're going to have to wait for. Name number three in verse 13. His name is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. His name is the Word of God. God has spoken to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word, God in human flesh. Like the written word, he expresses who God is and what he is like. We can read him. We can read all about what God is like in the word, the Lord Jesus. There's a fourth name in this in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he had this name written. And what a glorious name. King of kings and Lord of lords. You take all the Supremes that are on the planet, and he's beyond them. He's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Can you imagine what would happen in our lives if we live like we believe the reality of that name? If we really believed he was the King of kings and Lord of lords? I mean really believe. Live like we believe it. He's the rock of all ages. He's the Almighty. He's the omnipotent Lord. He's the steadying factor in all of our lives. A sailor in a shipwreck was thrown on a rock. He held on for dear life in great danger until the tide went down. Later, a friend asked him, Jim, didn't you shake with fear when you were hanging on that rock? Yes, but that rock didn't, was his reply. Christ is the rock of ages. We may go through some stormy times, but He's not going to be shaken. And if we're with Him, then we can hang on to the right thing. This rider is described in various ways. Look at verse 11. In righteousness, He judges and makes war. We've already seen that Jesus is faithful and true. We know His promises are sure. But we have a tendency to major only on the nice promises. Keep in mind he is just and faithful and true to the other kinds of promises as well, those involving the wrath and the judgment. We have to teach and preach those as well. Do you understand? We can't ignore them. Sometimes we have people say, well, why why was this so negative today? Well, it was so negative because that's what the passage was about. We can't ignore them. These parts about judgment and wrath, they don't write songs about them very often. You won't find us singing about them. We don't like to hear about them, but we need to know about them. Here's how one writer describes what's going on with this judgment. Jesus' adversaries this time will be the hardened sinners who have defied his judgments and scorned the gospel message during the tribulation. Despite all the devastating judgments they will have experienced and the powerful gospel preaching they will have heard, they will stubbornly refuse to repent. Since neither judgment nor preaching moves them to repent, Jesus will return to destroy them and, in his words here, send them to hell. I prefer that people choose to go to hell, but he he mentions that Jesus will send them to hell. Either way, they're going to end up in hell according to the teaching of the Scriptures. Still describing the writer, verse 12. His eyes are like blazing fire, similar to the description of Jesus back in Revelation chapter 1 in the Patmos portrait of Christ as we refer to it. They see everything. Jesus' eyes penetrate into our very being. There is nothing, not even a thought, that he doesn't know when we're thinking it. To some people, that's very, very scary. To other people, that's very comforting. It all depends how you're living, which one it's going to be. Those eyes of the Lord Jesus see the impurities as well as our genuine love for Him. We don't need to fear the eyes of Jesus. Only those who willfully reject Him or consciously ignore Him or turn their backs on His mercy need to fear Jesus in this sense. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from His sight, Can you picture that? But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's no cover up for any of us because he does see it all. Jeremiah 23, 24, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And that's the point that is being made here. His eyes are like blazing fire. But in this context, that blazing fire is for the purpose of purifying and judging. Further description of the writer in verse 12. On his head are many diadems or many crowns. Hence, we can say a little later, he is the king of kings. Verse 13, further description. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood? It's either a picture of the blood of the enemy. We can read about it in Revelation 14, but I won't turn there this morning. Um, We're looking back at the Battle of Armageddon. This is a, a, a prequel to what has already taken place that we're seeing right now. Isaiah chapter 63 describes that also vividly, the blood of the enemies and what will happen. There are some commentators who say that Jesus is making reference here to being clothed in a robe dipped in his own blood, the blood that was shed to atone for sin, that's all true and well and good, but in this context, it is probably not the intent. A fifth description of this rider in verse 14. It says, The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Whom does that describe? Who else have we met that will be wearing fine linen? Well, back earlier in chapter 19 in verse 8, the bride of Christ will be dressed that way. The church will be dressed that way. Those who are followers of the Lord Jesus. I believe that in that army coming back will be raptured believers who will be coming back riding those white horses. And I believe that I'll be riding a white horse also. And so will you if you're in Christ. And you know what? We won't be saddle sore the next day. When I was a kid, a neighbor had this horse named Smokey. Smokey stepped on my foot. And it hurt. And I didn't want to ride Smokey anymore. I was just a little kid. But my wife loves to ride horses. Every time I ride a horse now, I think about Smokey. But I don't think these horses are going to step on anybody's feet. I think, I think they're going to be absolutely fantastic to be a part of that great army. And again, this is time for imagination. The heavens are opened. A rider on a white horse is coming out leading his armies. And those armies are dressed in a certain way that describes the church, the bride of Christ. Is that us? I certainly would believe that it is us riding white horses. And I'll finally be in the army. I've never been in the army. I've always admired those of you that have served the military. This will be my chance. It's an all-volunteer army. God won't force anyone into his army, but for those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be there. But notice also, though, that the word is armies. It is plural. These armies will include, I believe, at least four divisions. The Old Testament saints, the tribulation martyrs, the bride of Christ armies In four divisions and think in terms of the the tribulation the Old Testament saints and uh, think in terms of us who are believers now uh, all part of that So the armies with the rider on the white horse what a great army Here's one technicality though. The armies are never going to fight There's no record that we're even given weapons. We're going to be there but it's going to be a single-handed victory by the rider on the white horse. He has the ultimate weapon with him because in verse 15, further description of him. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The word for sword there, that sharp sword, indicates a long and unusually large sword known as a Thracian sword. That's all he needs. Out of his mouth comes that sword. Isaiah eleven four puts it this way, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked it's what's coming out of his mouth Hebrews 4:12 for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart Do you remember in the garden of Gethsemane when they came for Jesus when Jesus said to them I am he I'm the one you're looking for they drew back and fell to the ground the power just from the words, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. There's a seventh description of this rider of the horse, this one in verse 15. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Someone has simply explained it this way. That vivid symbol of God's wrath comes from the ancient practice of stomping on grapes as part of the winemaking process. The splattering of the grape juice pictures the pouring out of the blood of Christ's enemies. Everyone who joins the evil army at Armageddon will be killed. The rest of the world's unredeemed people will be judged and executed at the sheep and goat judgment after Christ's return, as recorded in Matthew chapter. 25. All of that leads us to this very significant point in this chapter and the significant point on earth. And I'm glad that we dismissed the children. I'm glad that they're not hearing this. You might want to tell them about it in uh, maybe some different vernacular, but this is an ugly, disturbing scene. The roundup of the birds in verses 17 and 18. They didn't have any bird calls. They didn't have any bird whistles. This was a supernatural invitation to the Supper of God. It came from an angel, and it came before it happened. They were invited to the feast, and the carrion had not yet been killed. Who does the inviting? An angel standing in the sun, possibly in the light of the sun. He cried in a loud voice, Come, gather for the great Supper of God. Who is invited? This is not the wedding feast of the Lord Jesus, the marriage supper. Who's invited here? All the birds flying in midair. What do the birds represent? Pay attention here. Birds. They represent birds because they are birds. What will be served? Verse 18. The flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's what will be served. Do you realize every year millions of birds of many species migrate south from Europe to Africa? And to do that, you know where they have to fly over? They have to fly over Israel. Possibly that's where the birds are coming from. But it does mention the fact that these birds that are coming to eat the flesh, these birds are going to be active and involved already. It's as if there they are and now God is going to use them. They're not specially created. They're a part of what God is doing. Now we see the, um, the picture that's an ugly picture. I showed you one earlier of the vultures. Uh, Since we've moved out to Oxford, I travel a lot on Route 1, and I think maybe the county bird near where we live is the vulture Uh, because there are a lot of deer that get hit by cars and are all over Route 1. Every day you see it, and you see the vultures both on the ground, tearing at the deer, flying in the air. It's an ugly, ugly scene, but picture this. We're talking about maybe millions of people, involved. We're talking about this huge mess of birds that are coming. And all of that tells us the route of the beast is about to occur and does occur. This is the beast, the Antichrist. This is the one who set himself up to be worshiped and insisted on that, and people had to carry the mark of this beast. This is an account of Armageddon, as I mentioned before, revisited. Expanding on chapter 16, the battle lines are clearly drawn. The one side involves the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, those who would dare to be arrogant enough to defy the living God versus the rider on the horse and his armies. It's said that on the eve of Napoleon's departure on his Russian campaign, he detailed his schemes to a noble lady with such arrogant positiveness that she tried to slow him down by saying, Sir, man proposes, but God disposes. Madam, I propose and dispose too, he haughtily replied. A few months later, after the disastrous retreat and the loss of his crown, army, and liberty, it was evident who disposes. And it's going to be evident to the Antichrist, to the beast. The one who sets himself up in a haughty way over everyone else and everything else is going to find out that the rider on the white horse is supreme. The outcome, verses 20, 21, you can read through there. Incidentally, the beast and the false prophet will still be in the lake of fire a thousand years later when Satan is cast there. That clearly refutes the false doctrine of annihilationism. They're not annihilated. Somehow punishment will continue. Scripture says about punishment that it's going to be eternal. It warns of hell as a place where their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. It is obviously a place to be avoided. Back to Napoleon. One of the most interesting and significant objects in the world is a simple shaft of granite. It stands near the highway at a place called Wilna, on the western boundary of Russia. It has two inscriptions in the Russian language. On the side that faces westward are these words, Napoleon Bonaparte passed this way in 1812 with 410,000 men. On the side facing eastward is this, Napoleon Bonaparte passed this way in 1812 with 9,000 men. It was a tough time in the Siberian wilderness. At the end of the Battle of Armageddon, there will be no survivors among Antichrists in the world's armies. In comparison, Napoleon would look like a big winner. Revelation chapter 13, verse 4. I got ahead of myself. Nope, I didn't write it in. Let me, let me quote this. And they worshiped the dragon. That's Satan. For he had given his authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? At this point in our Scripture, that blasphemous question can be answered. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The rider on the white horse. The King of kings and Lord of lords has all the events on the human calendar under control. He'll once again, but this time in a very frightful way, show his superiority over the greatest accumulation of human might and muscle the world has ever known. We can trust him with these monumental events. Let me close by asking you this question. Don't you suppose we can trust him the way that he works in our lives and the little things as well? or even the big things on the here and now, not just the cosmic, colossal events, but those things that are a part of our lives. Do you think we can trust him with that problem that's weighing you down right now? Do you think he can handle it? Can we trust him with terrorism? Can we trust him with economic uncertainties? Can we trust him with failed relationships? Can we trust him with all of our hearts and not lean to our own understanding? Because he's not just a god of the great cosmic struggles. He's the God of the here and now and every day in our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for a picture of the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And may each one of us understand what it means to acknowledge his lordship in our lives day by day, all the time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.